Welcome to Hub History, the show that brings you fascinating stories from Boston history. This week is episode 12, Sacco and Vanzetti. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. And this week is part two of our inauguration special. We'll be talking about the Sacco and Vanzetti case and all the ways that prejudice prevented the men from receiving a fair trial. But first, it's time to take a look at what's coming up this week in Boston history. Monday is January 16th, and that's the date in 1776 when occupying British troops tore down Boston's North Church. Of course, we don't mean the church you know as Old North today, with the one if by land and two if by sea. That was still New North Church in 1776, and Old North, Boston's second congregation, stood in North Square across from Paul Revere's house. For simplicity, we call Old Old North just North Church, or Second Church. North Church was a wooden church originally founded in 1650, and it's remembered as the congregation of the Mather family. Increase, Cotton, and Samuel Mather all preached there over the years. The most recent minister, John Lathrop, was known as a patriot and had spoken out against the occupying troops from the pulpit. So during the hard winter of the siege, with the British soldiers unable to get enough fuel to stay warm, General Howe ordered them to pull down the wooden North Church and use it for firewood. The church was never rebuilt, and after the British evacuated, the congregation merged with New Brick Church. We mark a very special birthday on Tuesday. Ben Franklin, the 18th century polymath, scientist, printer, and founding father, was born on Milk Street in Boston on January 17, 1706. That made him essentially a generation older than many of the other founders, making him perhaps a founding grandfather. While he left Boston for Philadelphia as a young man, our city always held a place in his heart. In 1784, he wrote Reverend Samuel Mather from France, sharing memories of advice he had gotten from Samuel's father, Cotton Mather, and then saying, You mention your being in your 78th year. I am in my 79th. We are grown old together. It is now more than 60 years since I left Boston. I long much to see again my native place, and once hoped to lay my bones there. I left it in 1723. In 1775 I had a sight of it, but could not enter, it being in possession of the enemy. I did hope to have been there in 1783, but could not obtain my dismission from this employment here. And now, I fear, I shall never have that happiness. My best wishes, however, attend my dear country, Esto Perpetua. We'll have a link to that letter in the holdings of the Mass Historical Society in the show notes for this week's episode at hubhistory.com slash 012. Wednesday is January 18th, and that marks the anniversary of the first known UFO sighting in Boston. Two men were entering the inner harbor in a small boat after dark on January 18th, 1644. They saw two glowing lights rise up from the water near Town Cove at today's Faneuil Hall and fly over the town and out of sight. About a week later, Several witnesses claim to have seen small lights fly up from Castle Island and Noddle Island. They moved around the sky, hovered, joined and divided, and shot out flames and sparkles. Many people claim to have seen this phenomenon, but it has never been explained. On January 19, 1967, Boston Strangler suspect Albert DeSalvo was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. However, remember that he was jailed on unrelated charges, and he was never tried for the famous Strangler murders. 
For decades, some people believed that he had made a jailhouse deal to take the fall for the real Strangler. Since he was facing an almost certain life sentence anyway, why not confess to the Strangler killings and reap the rewards from selling his story? The fact that charges were never filed seemed to add weight to that idea. However, in 2013, his body was exhumed and DNA tested. The results conclusively linked him to one of the crime scenes. I guess we had the right man all along. Since this is our inauguration special, it's only appropriate that Friday, Inauguration Day, is the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's inaugural address where he famously exhorted us, My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In light of the transition of power that we are witnessing this week, perhaps the preceding paragraph is more fitting for this moment in history. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We'll have a link to a transcript and recording of the full speech in the show notes for this week's episode. Our ninth episode, The Zoo Shipwreck, covered a 1938 shipwreck near Gravesleight in Boston Harbor that had a happy ending. All the crew got off safely, and even the odd cargo of exotic zoo animals were safely rescued. Three years later, another crew wasn't as lucky. On January 21, 1941, the wooden fishing vessel Mary O'Hara was headed home in a blinding snowstorm when it collided with a coal barge near Graves Light. As the ship rapidly filled with water, the 23 men on board climbed the masts and the rigging to try to escape the rising water. Survivor Gabriel Welsh, from East Boston, described the tragic scene that followed. Our ship was torn apart, and she filled up so fast that a lot of fellows didn't have a chance to get above decks. All who did ran for the masts and started to climb. Those who chose the foremast were out of luck because it was soon underwater, and they went down. Some of the fellows who were with us in the mainmast couldn't hang on because of the cold. They dropped off, one by one, yelling and praying. We were all yelling as loud as we could. A passing trawler heard their cries and managed to get five survivors aboard. Eighteen men were killed in a tragedy long regarded as the deadliest modern wreck in Boston Harbor. And finally, Sunday is January 22nd. On January 22nd, 1776, the commanding general of the British forces in Boston, William Howe, wrote to an acquaintance in England. Robberies and housebreaking in particular had got to such a height in this town that some examples had become necessary to suppress it. Two soldiers, late of the 59th Regiment of Foot, have been tried, convicted, and sentenced to suffer death for breaking into and robbing the storehouse of Nathaniel and William Coffin. One of them has suffered. The other, Thomas Owen, as a young offender and having other circumstances to plead in his favor, I have thought proper to reprieve. So that shows again 
how desperate the conditions were within Boston during the siege in the winter of 1775 and 1776. You know, most of the anniversaries we covered this week were pretty, well, grim. Maybe that's just a reflection of our mood right now. Do we have a more cheerful topic to talk about this week? No. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for Sacco and Vanzetti. But let's set the backdrop for this episode with a crash course on immigration waves in Boston. Up until the 1850s, we are a very English-descended, homogenous, Protestant city. The population shifts begin with the Irish in the 1840s. As the potato famine in Ireland just devastates the poor and working class, the Irish immigrated to Boston in such high numbers that in five years they make up almost 50% of the population. Their arrival in the city is a significant factor in the decision to fill in the back bay and create a new, elite neighborhood for the respectable folks who are fleeing the newcomers. And then, as the Irish begin to pick up manual labor on the very same project that was designed to box them in, and work as domestic servants in the resulting neighborhood, they're able to move into the middle class. Between the 1880s and 1920s, the North End in Boston becomes home to a thriving Jewish community, and the South End welcomed immigrants from all over the world. Today, out-of-towners might think of Boston as an Irish city, but we have pockets of immigrants that have built vibrant communities in every neighborhood in the city. Now, tying it back to Sacco and Vanzetti, the Italian presidents that we see today is really concentrated in the North End, and that begins to take shape around 1910. So what would you say is the greatest cultural contribution that the Italians made to the North End? Anarchy. By the 1860s, anarchism was well established as a political movement that supports the idea that a hierarchical government and society where a handful of people have authority over the masses is oppressive. Several key leaders to the movement settled in Italy, which was a heavily industrialized country with a lot of fairly educated young people who really had no hope of ever getting a meaningful job and advancing themselves. So they are open to a radical movement, as youth of every generation tend to be. Organized groups spring up around Italy, and between the 1870s and World War II, there are a number of uprisings. The movement is really on the cusp of a revolution with a very effective underground network, but they just never hit the tipping point before the country is engulfed in a war. But here in America, we're relatively free from that conflict and facing similar conditions in our cities and right here in Boston. The anarchist movement came to America and took hold in pockets across the country. Boston was no different than any other city or community. Anarchism was not welcome. And stereotyping led to the misconception that all Italians were anarchists. Kind of like the belief today that all Muslims are jihadists, or that all Christians are neo-Nazis. Yes. And similarly, lots of things are then blamed on Italian anarchists. As an example, listeners will recall from episode 3, The Great Molasses Flood, that anarchists were initially named as the cause of the tank's explosion. In the 1920s, Nicolas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti became the face of the movement. The two men were arrested and tried for an armed robbery and the murder of two men, 
at the Slater Morrill Shoe Factory in Braintree, just south of the city. The crime took place at 3 p.m. on the afternoon of April 15, 1920. As the guard and paymaster were transporting payroll by foot from the company's office building to the factory, they were shot and robbed by two men with pistols. As the murder was being committed, a car containing several other men drew up to the spot. The murderers threw the boxes of money into the car, jumped in, and were driven away. The car was discovered in a patch of woods two days later. All we initially hear from the eyewitnesses is that the men looked Italian. To explain how Sacco and Vanzetti were picked up for this crime is pretty complicated, and I think it just points to how shoddy the evidence was. At the time of this murder, police were already investigating a similar crime in Bridgewater, an armed robbery by men assisted by a getaway car. Again, an eyewitness believed them to be Italian, but their ethnicity was just a guess. The car drove off towards Cochesset, so the police narrowed the search to look for any Italian men who lived in Cochesset and owned a car. Sacco and Vanzetti had the misfortune of being acquainted with such a man, whose car was in the shop at the time, and they accompanied him to pick it up, a classic case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. During the arrest, the owner of the car escaped, and a fourth man was arrested, but eventually cleared. Initially, Sacco and Vanzetti are looked at for both crimes. Sacco was cleared for the Bridgewater crime because he could show that he was at work, but Vanzetti was self-employed as a fish peddler. And I just want to point out here that Sacco worked at another shoe factory and Vanzetti was a fish peddler, as you mentioned. And this is a pretty sophisticated crime for two random guys. The head of the state police always maintained that this was a professional job. The Sacco and Vanzetti Defense Committee, at the urging of anarchist leader Carlo Tresca, hired Fred H. Moore, a lawyer from California. He was experienced at representing defendants in politically charged cases, but he knew nothing about the Massachusetts legal system and the judge and prosecutor that he'd be up against. He was also visually marked as an outsider by his long hair. I picture it as something similar to Joe Pesci walking into a courtroom in a leather jacket in My Cousin Vinny. Moore knew that his best hope was not proving innocence to a jury that had already made up their minds. It was to create a political trial with national attention. In the year leading up to the start of the trial, Moore drummed up awareness by continually blasting out messaging that two innocent men were being framed for their beliefs and would be facing a biased judge. He also brought class into the mix, positioning Sacco and Vanzetti as working-class heroes who could draw sympathy from the fellow blue-collar workers. proved to be somewhat effective. The New England Civil Liberties Union sent out a letter declaring the evidence unsubstantial and that they were victims of prejudice due to their status as foreigners and influential radicals. The trial opened in Dedham on May 31, 1921, and was presided over by Judge Webster Thayer. To summarize a lot of evidence, the case against the two was built on eyewitness testimony placing them at the scene of the crime. Ballistics experts that attempted to prove that one of the bullets was fired from Sacco's gun, and lies that were told at the time of their arrest. And I find the testimony about Sacco and Vanzetti's whereabouts during the crime to just be too conflicting to draw a conclusion. For every witness swearing to identify them as the shooters, you have a defense witness placing them elsewhere. However, the defense witnesses were predominantly friends of the two men or linked to anarchist groups. Most of the prosecution witnesses who ID the defendants are shaky. 
You have a witness who saw the getaway car driving by through a factory window at least 30 feet away and for no more than a few seconds. And yet a year later, this person claims to make a positive identification. You have another witness who, a month after the murders, tells the police that Sacco looks like one of the shooters and now a year later is able to make an identification with 100% certainty. The witnesses are just not credible, especially when compared to others who were at the crime scene who say that they just could not ID men who they only had a fleeting glimpse of and who were previously unknown. Think about the stranger who got on the train in front of you yesterday. Can you pick that person out of a lineup today? Probably not. Ultimately, while prosecution witnesses identified Sacco as one of the two gunmen, no witness ever claimed to have seen Vanzetti during the actual shooting. There's also the question of the contradictory statements the two men made in the days following their arrest, some of which we know to be lies. There's the obvious issue that they were not strong English speakers, but also it may very well be that they were up to something else that day. They may have been distributing or disposing of anarchist literature. They may have even been planning another crime. Certainly, contradictory statements would cause a jury to question the defendant's innocence, but it is circumstantial. The most reliable evidence was the ballistics testimony on a bullet found in one of the bodies. The bullet indisputably was fired from a Colt automatic. Sacco was arrested carrying a Colt automatic. The defense had experts who gave counter-testimony, but the fact is that in the 1960s, tests at the Massachusetts police lab indicated that the bullet was fired from Sacco's gun. Or rather, the gun Sacco had on him at the time of his arrest. That's pretty strong evidence, but for the time and the place, and especially for those active in an anarchist cell, it wasn't uncommon to be sharing and trading guns. Lastly, and perhaps most impactful of all, is the drama surrounding these two men and the questioning of their beliefs. They did not forsake their values, and they used this platform to criticize capitalism. I just want to share one quote of Sacco's from the transcript, given when the prosecutor asked what he meant when he said that he loved a free country. You can hear both conviction and confusion in his answer. I teach over here men who is with me. I could see the best men, intelligent, education. They've been arrested and sent to prison and died in prison for years and years without them getting out. And Debs, one of the great men in his country, he is in prison, still away in prison because he is a socialist. He wanted the laboring class to have better conditions and better living, more education. Give a push his son if he would have a chance someday. But they put him in prison. Why? Because the capitalist class, they don't want our child to go to high school or to college or Harvard College. There would be no chance. There would not be no... They don't want the working class education. They want the working class low all the times, be underfoot and not up with the head. So sometimes you see the Rockefellers, Morgans, they give 50... I mean, they give $500,000 to Harvard College. They won't get the poor class. They won't get no chance to go to Harvard College. I like men to get everything that nature will give best. So that is why I love people who labor and work and see better conditions every day develop. Makes no more war. We no want to fight by the gun and we don't want to destroy young men. The war is not like Abraham Lincoln's and Abe Jefferson. 
to fight for a free country, for the better education, to give a chance to any other peoples. They are war for business. Millions of dollars come on the side. I want to destroy those guns. That is why I love the socialists. That is why I like people who want education and living, building, who is good, just as much as they could. That is all. The trial ran from May 31st to July 14th. The jury only deliberated for five and a half hours before finding the both men guilty. Regarding Judge Thayer's bias throughout the trial, reporters heard Judge Thayer during a lunch recess say, I'll show them that no long-haired anarchist from California can run this court. And also, you wait till I give my charge to the jury. I'll show them. Post-trial, Judge Thayer denied five separate motions, each requesting a new trial based on new or evolving evidence. The motions are followed by an appeal to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Celestino Medeiros, an ex-convict awaiting trial for murder, confessed to committing the murders that Sacco and Vanzetti had been convicted for. Once Medeiros was convicted, the police investigated the details and began to look at the Morelli gang based in Providence. Police developed a new theory of the crime based on the gang's history of shoe factory robberies and connections to a car like the one used in Braintree. Additionally, Gang leader Joe Morelli bore a striking resemblance to Sacco. The defense filed a motion for a new trial based on the Medeiros confession, which Thayer heard in September 1926. Along with their Medeiros-Morelli theory of the crime, the defense charged that the U.S. Justice Department was aiding the prosecution by withholding information obtained in its own investigation of the case. Attorney William Thompson argued, A government which has come to value its own secrets more than it does the lives of its citizens has become a tyranny, whether you call it a republic, a monarchy, or anything else. Judge Thayer denied this motion for a new trial on October 23, 1926, causing the Boston Herald to reverse its long-standing position and call for a new trial. The Supreme Judicial Court again denied an appeal. With the execution date drawing near, in May of 1927, the governor responded to increasing pressure by convening a three-man committee to determine if the trial had been fair. And after a several-week review, the committee advised the governor not to open up the trial again. After seven years, the execution took place early in the morning of August 22, 1927, at the state prison in Charlestown. A crowd of over 20,000 protesters had gathered on Boston Common the night before, waiting for word of their fate. Sacco went to the death chamber first, shouting, Farewell, mother, at the last minute. Vanzetti then followed, shaking hands with the guards and thanking them for treating him humanely. His final words were, I want to forgive these people for what they are now doing to me. As word spread around the world, there were violent protests in England, France, Holland, Switzerland, and Germany. There were peaceful protests in Japan and South Africa, and a series of general strikes in South America. Back in Boston, the bodies were viewed publicly for two days with thousands of mourners. On August 28th, the funeral procession wound its way from the North End to Forest Hill Cemetery in Jamaica Plain. Thousands of people marched, and perhaps as many as 200,000 came out to watch. The Boston Globe called it 
one of the most tremendous funerals of modern times. And while the story does not end well, there isn't a positive impact through judicial reform. Since 1939, the SJC has been required to review all death penalty cases to consider the entire case record and affirm or overturn the verdict on the law and on the evidence or for any other reason that justice may require. And though it took time to pass, this change was a direct result of the Sacco and Vanzetti trial and the SJC's inability to grant an appeal, thus giving one judge the ability to sentence death with no review. Fifty years later, Governor Dukakis declared August 23, 1977 as Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti Memorial Day. His proclamation, issued in English and Italian, stated that Sacco and Vanzetti had been unfairly tried and convicted, and that any disgrace should be forever removed from their names. He did not pardon them, so as not to imply that they were guilty. I'd like to close with a statement Vanzetti made to a reporter while in prison. If it had not been for these things, I might have lived out my life talking at street corners to scorning men. I might have died, unmarked, unknown, a failure. Now we are not a failure. This is our career and our triumph. Never in our full life could we hope to do such work for tolerance, for justice, for man's understanding of man, as now we do by accident. Our words, our lives, our pains, nothing. The taking of our lives, lives of a good shoemaker and a poor fish peddler, all. The last moment belongs to us. That agony is our triumph. Okay, if anybody wants to find out more about Sacco and Vanzetti, you can go to today's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 012. We'll post a link to a detailed account from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, which will allow you to do a deep dive into the trial transcripts and evidence. We'll also have a link and to an we'll exhibit on the trial that's on display at the Adams Courthouse Foster in Boston. casts made of their faces after death, as well as pictures from the funeral procession. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook at facebook.com hubhistory, and our Twitter handle is at hubhistory. You can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. And while you're there, be sure to click on subscribe to see all the ways to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe on iTunes, please consider reviewing us there. Your reviews will help other listeners find the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a show about an extraordinary woman named Catherine Naylor, the artifacts she left behind, and why she was granted the first divorce in Massachusetts.